transition uh, into what we're going to be talking about tonight. But um, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get it out, whether it's um, on paper or through the YouVersion Bible app. Um, if you don't have the YouVersion Bible app, maybe you could ask someone next to you quietly um, if you, they could help you download the YouVersion Bible app. And all of the sermon notes are in there and um, some resources. And, and a sermon, there, today there's a link to a sermon that I think would be extremely helpful for you to listen to. It's only 34 minutes long. It was really helpful for me in tackling and answering this question. So the question that we are going to be tackling are, are men superior to women in marriage? So last week we talked about are men superior to women in the church, and today we're going to talk about marriage and in the family and in the home. And I want to offer a disclaimer here. Um, I'm definitely not an expert on this topic. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on really anything, but um, I do my best to try to, um, to read and to study and try to figure out what the text is saying and maybe what God was trying to communicate to the original audience. Um, but this is, this is my best uh, to communicate how I feel uh, Scripture teaches um, on this topic and, and other topics. And you might be asking yourself, um, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about marriage? Why are we talking about men? Why are men superior to women in marriage? And why is this important for teenagers to think through? And um, the main idea of responding to questions like this um, is to help us understand how to uncover and understand deep, complex, and nuanced questions. And the two texts that we studied last week from first reading sounded extremely, if you were here, they sounded extremely hateful, misogynistic, and not loving, like, at all. And what often happens is people read verses like we read last week, take it for what they really think it means, what they just think of it as faith value, and they move on. And the, and the problem is when we, when we do that, we often miss what is actually being said. And a lot of times we fail to determine the why behind what was written. And so if you missed last week, I would, I would love for you to uh, find us on Spotify, Bethel, YTH on Spotify. And um, you can listen to all of our sermons, sermons there. Um, but when we just read uh, texts that face value, especially ones that sound really crazy, and we don't ask questions like who was the audience, what was going on in their culture, and why would they need instruction on this specific topic or issue, when we don't ask those questions, we're not trying to find answers to the questions that we have. And once we determine those things and we read around the text, we can, we can um, begin to gather what is taking place. We talked a lot last week, and we do every week, but especially last week, that context is key. Context is what helps you understand. And last week, as we answered the question, are men superior to women in the church, we were able to discover that women are not beneath or below. They are equal, and God has structured his church to reflect that equality. And so uh, let's jump into our men superior to women in marriage. And this is a question that uh, is rooted in the family dynamic of a home. And I'm not sure what type of home situation you're coming from or how the roles of mom and dad or the guardians that you live with or grandma and grandpa are played out in your home. But I'm sure it's similar to one of these or a mixture of both. 
dad has the most authority, mom has the most authority. So when there's disagreements, or maybe here's the, the, the mixture. When there's disagreements or making a big decision, maybe your parents or your guardians talk it out and try to come to a decision that they both agree on. Obviously, these are huge generalizations. They're, every family is different. There are, they work differently. They process things differently. But like I said, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what, what sort of baggage you might carry in relation to your parents. But my hope is that when you leave here tonight, you have a deeper understanding of how God has structured the marriage relationship, but also how people in general are to treat one another. So to give a brief summary and to give some context of what is taking place, we have to look around Ephesians chapter 5. So let's look at the previous chapter. Chapter 4 is broken down into two sections with these headings. It's, it's talking about unity and maturity in the body of Christ and also instructions for Christian living. And so these sections, they talk about wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters, masters treat your slaves the same. So these few chapters leading up to the text we're going to study tonight, Paul is laying out what it means for people who claim to trust and follow Jesus to love one another as Christ loved the church. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, that was insane, what was that? Uh, verse 1 says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what we see here, this is the foundation to the text that we are going to be studying tonight. Paul is telling this community of believers in Ephesus that in order to live out this life in, in accordance with the way that God loved us, we need to love one another. This is not an emotional love that we have come to become very familiar with and understand. But this is a love that requires action. It's an, it's, it looks like Jesus laying down his life for the church. And in a sermon on this text, um, the link, if you're using the YouVersion Bible app notes, you'll see the link at the very bottom of, of the notes. There's a link to a sermon that Tim Mackey preached on. He's from the Bible Project, an incredible resource. Uh, and he describes love as this way. He says, a commitment to act for the well-being of others. So this is the love that Paul is instructing the church in Ephesus to operate in. So we're going to read our text tonight. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask Madison Bain to come up here. We are going to read Ephesians 5, chapter 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife also loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, 
but they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thanks, Madison. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's, there's so much there, right? There's probably so many question marks that you're asking yourself. Um, here's a couple questions that I thought of when I started reading this text. Are wives the only ones that have to submit in everything? What does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Why are men only told to love their wives and not to submit like the women are instructed to do? Like we say every week, the, the Bible was not, those are just some of the questions that just literally popped into my head as I was writing this sermon yesterday. Um, like we say every week, the Bible was not written uh, to us. It was written for us. So that means there will be things in the Bible that don't make sense to us and could sound like crazy. They could sound pretty horrible. But if we can realize that there is this very large cultural gap that we need to understand, we will be setting ourselves up for success. So the questions that we need to be asking about this text are context questions. Like, why did Paul address this specific issue? What was happening in this church? How did marriage operate in this time period? How did the relationship between men and women function? These are a few questions that we need to ask in order to gain an understanding of why this was written in the first place. And we can begin to understand what was being said. So the Roman society that this church was in was deeply rooted in patriarchy. Patriarchy simply means that, that men have the highest authority. They are rulers over everything. Everyone else is beneath them. They were the most important. Like I said, they had the most authority. The women served a very limited purpose. Here's an ancient Greek uh, statesman. He's kind of like a politician, Demos. Demosthenes, whatever. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and being faithful guardians for our household affairs. Cicero, he was a Roman statesman, politician. Our ancestors in their wisdom considered that all women, because of their innate weakness, should be under the control of guardians. That's pretty, uh, uh, yeah, it's a high level of respect for women, right? Can you see it? No, no, not at all. This is the culture that this letter was being written into. Some historians described Roman marriage and marriage in, in the Roman culture as legalized prostitution because marriage served as a way for men to have children, most importantly, boys, and, and find, they can find their sexual pleasure outside of marriage with prostitutes and sex slaves. So the Jewish people, the people of God, who you would think like, okay, like they're probably better. They probably don't do these things. They probably don't think the same way as the Roman citizens. They weren't. A common Jewish prayer in the first century went like this. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Yeah, this is real. This is recorded history. 
There's, there's actually one story in the Gospels where Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman at a well. She was retrieving water, and this, this woman was of mixed race. She was Jewish and non-Jewish. She was a woman that not just had one, two, three, four, but five husbands, and, the man, and the, the man she was living with wasn't even her husband. But Jesus wasn't just talking to her, but she was actually the first person that Jesus revealed that he was the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. A woman who was stained, that had a colored past, and was, and was outcasted. The, this is the person that Jesus was revealing um, his, his uh, deity to. Jesus was breaking down barriers, breaking down walls that separated men and women and was instilling this truth that there is equality in the family of God. And we don't have time to go into all of that in this story and this interaction, but what he was doing was he was flipping the script. He was demonstrating what he taught, that the last shall become first and the first shall become last. So let's start unpacking the text. Let's go back to verse 21. Submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So a very important detail that we need to know is that verse 21 where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is speaking to the whole church community in Ephesus. Paul has not narrowed his, his focus yet. He says that the whole church community should submit to one another. Ephesians 5, chapter 1, let's go back there. Paul tells the church uh, community to love one another. And here he says to submit to one another. Tim Mackey said this in that same sermon. Says, um, he says this about submission. Prioritize the interests and well-being of others above your own. So what we see here that Paul is describing is like a coin. And there are two sides to this coin. One side is to love one another. And the other side of this coin is to submit to one another. So what we see is we see these two things working in tandem in the life of a believer. To love and to submit. To love and to submit. To act in such a way that to prioritize in such a way that the interests of others are of great importance to you. Verse 22 is where Paul brings an example of a specific relationship where the balancing act of love and submission is to take place. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Remember, there's a coin. There's two sides to this coin that Paul is talking about. Love and submission working in tandem is the context of which Paul is writing. Does he give, this is a question I want you to answer, does he give women the free pass to not love their husbands? No. And we know this because these wives are a part of the one another that Paul is addressing in verse 1 and verse 21. So how does this apply to men? Let's jump to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Remember, love and submission, working in tandem in the life of a believer is the context. Does he give, I want you to answer this, does he give husbands the free pass to not submit to their wives? 
Wrong. <laughs> no. The answer is no. You can say no. No. Why? Because these husbands are a part of the one another that Paul is addressing as a whole. Let me share something with you that was kind of like this like aha moment for me to understand and try to wrap my head around of why this was important. Remember, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. So there are cultural things that we miss and we're so far removed from. So let's talk about the power structure in the Roman Empire. This is kind of where it was like it was all starting to click together. The power structure in the Roman Empire was very simple. At the very top, it was the emperor. The emperor's nickname was the son of God because they, they thought that the emperor, the Caesars, were literally descendants from the gods. Um, you had the emperor, then you had the elite, you had like patriarchy, so you then you had uh, men, and then you had women, and then you had children, and you had slaves. They were at the very bottom. So this is like the order of command. This is how it went in, in the ancient Roman Empire, and no one ever deviated from this. This is what they, they claimed to work and how they deemed power to be distributed properly. Marriage was also interesting. In this culture, a man would go to a father of a woman and pay this father money for his daughter. This woman would then become this man's wife, and typically these marriages were done in a way that benefited one of the families. So maybe uh, one of the families was maybe getting a bump up in the social class. Maybe they were getting an economic or a financial gain. But the thing is, it was not a self. It was not an others-serving thing. The average age of a male in this culture to be married. You got any guesses? Forty-five. Who said 13? 13, okay. The average age of a man to be married is between the age of 26 and 30. Can you guess the average age of the woman to be married? 12, 15, 13. The average age of a Roman woman to be married was 12 to 15. These women were property. These... <laughs> Yeah, this is weird. Like in our culture, it's actually, Tim Mackey says this in the sermon. He's like, when he kind of brought out this point, it's literally illegal. Like in America, you literally cannot do this legally. And it's creepy. A 30-year-old man marrying a 12-year-old girl. These women were property. She was purchased for one thing or for two things, to have legitimate children and to manage the house. These marriages weren't for love. They were a means to gain something. And Paul was teaching these believers in the church in Ephesus. He's saying that there is to be mutual submission in the church community as well as in the home. Men, these young women are not property. They are human beings who are created in the image of God and have immense value and worth. You are not to take advantage of them. You are to lay down your life for them. You are to love them in such a way to commitment to act for their well-being. So what we see is the gospel of Jesus was, was flipping the script and was flipping the structure upside down. 
So Jesus, when he came to the earth as the actual son of God, not the emperor, not the Caesar, when he came to earth, he preached a message that was for the lowest of the low, and he gave up his life for the lowest of the low. This was a radical concept. Again, the structure, it was being flipped upside down, and Paul is saying that in the kingdom of God, husbands love and submit to their wives, and wives also love and submit to their husbands. So let's read verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So can you imagine, you're a male Roman citizen who has become a Christ follower, and you see what Paul is saying, saying your wife is not property. She does not exist Solely to serve you, but instead you are to serve her as Jesus served the church, laying down his life. Depending on your upbringing, depending on um, the upbringing that your parents had, you might be thinking to yourself, Taylor is a feminist. (laughs) It's just like, give all the power to the women. No, I'm just reading and studying the Bible and asking questions. And depending on what your interpretation of what headship means in the Bible, that can drastically change what being the head means here. Verse 23 said that the husband was the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And one of the questions I asked earlier is, what does it mean for the husband to be the head of the wife? And Paul gives us an example of what this headship is. He says, Christ and the church. In Mark 9, Jesus describes how to be great in the kingdom of God. Mark 9, 35 says, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant to all. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Excuse me. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for some reason, marriage, uh, this hasn't played out quite this clearly. So how has this played out in Christian marriages over the past centuries? This is a generalization, and it's not true of every marriage. But each marriage functions differently differently. Um, Slightly different than the other one. But in general, this is how Christian marriages have played out. The husband is the leader of the home and the family. He decides the trajectory. They determine the spiritual temperature and the spiritual depth of the family. When there's a disagreement, the final decision is made by the husband. Everything, the buck stops with the man. The husband is the head. Therefore, whatever the person's idea of headship is or what they have been taught and modeled is how they define headship. Where the problems can arise is when we don't look at passages like this one and dig out and to find what they say what what headship is and how it played out. Remember, love and submission are uh, are two sides of the same coin. Paul's vision for biblical marriage is to be of mutual submission. Mutually, the husband and wife are serving and submitting and loving one another for each other's benefit. When both people are pursuing a life to honor Jesus, this love and submission works in unity with one another. It goes back and forth and back and forth. No one loses 
when both are loving and mutually submitting. Remember, Paul is not just telling husbands and wives to love and submit. In verse 1 and verse 21, he's telling the whole church community to love one another and to submit to one another. So how does this practically work for you and I? If this text was written to the whole church community, this means that it's applicable to the whole church community. For you and I, this practically looks like living out love and submission to our siblings. Living out love and submission to your friends. If you're married, love and submission with your spouse. Um, for Megan and I, I'm, I'm almost finished, by the way. For Megan and I, I'll tell you about just how the love and submission kind of works in our family. Um, we talk about pretty much everything. Uh, we talk about spending our finances. Um, we talk about how to best steward the resources that God has given us. When she feels like the Holy Spirit is, is leading her to be generous with money to a person or to missions or to an organization, we talk about it. And I trust that what she's feeling and the amount that she's feeling um, is from the Holy Spirit. And I submit to that. When we talk about decisions about parenting, we try to figure out what's best for our kids, what's best for our family, and what's best for our sanity. But we, we try our best to decide on those things together. Big decisions about if we wanted to have kids, about moving or buying a house, we talk about it and we come to the best conclusion that's for our family. Remember, love and submission is working in tandem and is working in unity together. And, and here's another one, areas of expertise for her or for myself. If one of us has expertise in a certain area, we trust each other to make the decision that best suits our family or whatever the case may be. Very rarely do we not come to the same conclusion. But when we don't and someone submits to that person's idea, no one is losing. No one is losing because we are both loving and submitting, and we're striving for what's best for one another. Not what's best for me, what's best for us. And I'm going to tell you this too. I'm no less of a man for submitting to the wisdom of my wife. You are, man, you are no less of a man by submitting to a woman. Woman, you are no less of a woman in submitting to a man. Because, once again, love and submission working in tandem, living a life for the other person. When this is lived out in the life of a Christian, it is a true and beautiful display of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. He gave his life for our sin so that we could have life. So if I could leave you with one thought tonight, it would be this. Christians are called to mutually submit to one another because of their love for Christ. In doing so, you are displaying the beauty of the gospel. So that's why we talk about love and submission. That's why we talk about marriage, because it's bigger than marriage. Loving and submitting is bigger than marriage. And what we want to do is we want to ask a few questions. Um, we've come up with a couple questions that we would love for you to talk about in your small group and just kind of have a dialogue and just share your thoughts and um, the things that came up, maybe there's a couple questions that came up for you. We'd love for you guys to talk about those. And so we're going to take the next 20 minutes. We're going to jump into our small groups. At the end of your small group time, 
but the last five minutes. If you wouldn't mind um, taking that survey, it's really short. Give us your honest thoughts and feedback because we want to make this uh, the best place that we can. And so let's head to our small groups. The guys are in the back of the room. Girls are in the front, high school is on this side of the room, and middle school is on this side of the room. And your small group leader will dismiss you when you're done.